Many of you have asked for it, and so I spent some of my paternity leave creating it, an introductory stoicism course. The best part? I've launched it using Gumroad's pay-what-you-want model. So if you want to pay $0, you can get the course for free. That's right, free. Learn more and enroll in the course by going to understandingstoicism.com. That's understandingstoicism.com. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform, and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it, and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which, from personal experience, I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical. Shopify.com forward slash practical. Hey there, Percaptan. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm going to have a conversation with Will Johncock, who is the author of, I think it's a new book, I guess in the big picture, it's pretty new. It's about a year old. It's called Beyond the Individual, with the subtitle being Stoic Philosophy on Community and Connection. And it is a phenomenal book. And very thankfully, although Will is a academic, he did not publish it through an academic press, which is just so terrific. Because as you know, at this point, after buying goodness knows how many books yourself on stoicism, probably when books are released through academic presses, they have a tendency to cost a lot of money, $100, $150, $200, as if they were textbooks. There's reasons for this that I don't understand well enough to dive into, but it's not great for everyday consumers like you or I who don't have 100 to $200 to spend on a book. Beyond the Individual is just $29 in paperback, $32 in hardcover, and only 10 bucks on Kindle. It is well worth those dollars, and I would encourage you to go pick up a copy at your earliest convenience when you have a little bit of extra quid to spend. I'd also like to say that I will be trying to host Will within the patron Discord channel in the Discord community in the upcoming week or two. I think it's a good opportunity to give patrons the chance to ask Will questions directly. I think he will also enjoy that. He seemed to like the suggestion when I made it to him after our conversation. No promises, but keep in mind I'm going to try to make that happen, and I will announce it here on a public episode when I have that lined up. Patrons, keep an eye on the Patreon feed. And speaking of patrons, I have a whole bunch of you to thank for becoming patrons this month. Since the last episode, it's a big increase, and I probably should start by just saying thanks a lot. It really makes a difference in my life and makes me feel supported as a philosophy creator, I guess is what I'm calling myself now. Thank you to Felipe Silva, Demo FD, Callum Wright, Brian Timmer, Just 
M, Christopher Tweed, Atenos, Wyatt Peterson, Jake Galbraith, which I think I've said wrong, sorry, Jake, John Badden, Zach Bream, Michaela Allen, I think I've said that right, Michaela, sorry if I didn't, Dan Bonokowski, Amanda Tillman, Philippe Boyvin, Jason Monteroso, Stanley Cole, Jeffrey Backer, and Dakota Cam. That is so many new people, so thank you very much to you and to everyone who has joined as a patron recently or at all. I make mention in this episode that Patreon supporters are able to watch these recordings live, and that is now the case. So while I don't publish these videos, I do host the conversations live through the StreamYard platform, and I am beginning to send links out to patrons ahead of these conversations so that you'll be able to see the recording live. I actually make a little bit of a joke about that because you get to see how much editing I really do in a show when you compare the live version to the finished version like what you're hearing now. StreamYard has a chat feature, and so you're allowed to submit questions during the recording, which quite frankly makes my job as a creator a bit easier because it gives me something to ask the guests that perhaps I did not think of myself. And it gives you as a patron the ability to get specific questions, perhaps, although I can't guarantee every question would be used, answered by the guest. If that sort of thing interests you, that might be another reason for you to become a patron. So you can do that by going to stoicismpod.com forward slash members. Now we have a few ads, and on the other side of that, we'll jump right into my conversation with Will Johncock, author of Beyond the Individual. This episode is brought to you in part by Prize Picks, America's number one fantasy sports app with over 3 million members. They are, without a doubt, the easiest way to play DFS. It's just you versus the numbers. You pick more than or less than on two to six player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. With the big game right around the corner, Prize Picks is the easiest and most exciting way to turn every game changing moment into 100 times your money because with as little as four correct picks, you can turn $10 into $1,000. Offer expires post Super Bowl. With quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of player and stat types, it's no wonder Prize Picks is the number one daily fantasy sports app. I've got friends that use Prize Picks, and they absolutely swear by it. So if daily fantasy sports is your thing, you've got to give Prize Picks a try. Go to prizepicks.com forward slash practical and use the code practical for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com forward slash practical with code practical for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often, so stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify today and discover why millions trust Shopify as their 
all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Uh, hey, Will Johncock, how are you? I'm good, Tenna. How are you? I'm doing really well. I really don't like doing introductions of people that I look up to and admire for their work. So rather than butcher a terrible introduction of you or your new book, Beyond the Individual, can you tell the people who are watching or listening a little bit about who you are uh, and where you came from before you entered into, I think for the first time, the stoic space and as far as writing is concerned? Let's say I was doing graduate studies, PhD studies in philosophy and 20th century sociology as well. And that was how I encountered Stoicism the first time. Uh, there were various 20th century continental philosophers who were mentioning Stoicism in passing. I'd also encountered it very briefly in my undergraduate studies uh, through Plato and Aristotle, commentaries on Plato and Aristotle. And so we're talking about 2010, 2011, 2012 kind of time frame. And I became increasingly interested in it as I became increasingly interested in questions of where we end as individuals and where the rest of the world begins and vice versa and the, the border, let's say, between those two. And so it was around that time and then the years that followed that I started to identify in Stoicism some really interesting theories about individualism and collectivism that I wanted to explore. And I think it just so happens that around that time, Stoicism became really, really popular. And who, who's not to say that that was also responsible for me uh, catching this Stoic wind, so to speak, and becoming part of it. I actually wrote a book about six years ago, which compares Stoic philosophies and social theories. And the book is rather dryly called Stoic Philosophy and Social <laughs> Theory. Sounds riveting. It's quite an academic read. Uh, it, it does. It's a series of comparative studies between each chapter has one Stoic philosopher and one modern, as in 19th, 20th century social theorist. Mm. So that was my first foray into this world. And I followed it up last year with Beyond the Individual, which was an extension of some of my uh, inquiries into the notion of individualism in Stoicism or not and um, collectivism and stoicism. I do want to talk about the differences between individualism, collectivism, and stoicism a little bit later on in our conversation. But what I heard in what you just said was, you know, you're a sociology guy, you're a 20th century philosophy guy, and then you come across stoicism and there's something that pulls you into it. And I'm wondering, as I have delved deeper into the philosophy myself over the last few years, I have found there's a question that keeps coming up in my head, which is, how is it possible that this is not the central philosophy of far more people than it is. And that's part of what attracts me to it so much and what keeps me creating in the space is this is obviously the solution to so many things and why don't people see this? Why, why don't we understand this? Did, did you experience something similar? Were you like, whoa? <laughs> I was. I really was. Yeah? Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. The aspect that really pulled me in was the physics. And I think as you move through it, you find that the physics and the ethics are so intertwined but more on that later. It was really the physics and the simplicity of the physical theory and the idea that you could identify something that was distinctly individual in something that was distinctly greater than that individual. 
And so it was, again, the simplicity of that reading, which really attracted me to the philosophy. Had you had any exploration into mereological thinking prior to this, or was part and whole something new to you as you came to Stoicism that, that really struck you? Well, definitely not new in the sense of trying to explore uh, the relations between the individual and the social that's so inherent to sociological analysis. And certain aspects of 20th century philosophy too will be exploring those questions. But I don't think I'd ever found a physical theory that had, had so straightforwardly addressed the question. And that, again, was what appealed to me so much about it. And I, it, it seemed actually so straightforward that as I got into it, I was waiting for it to turn back upon itself and confuse me. Uh, and I'm not saying that there isn't a complexity to stoic physics. Of course, there is. But uh, again, that, there was there's something really, really materially straightforward about the physics and about that explanation of how we relate to everything and everything relates to us that appealed to me. Well, we don't get too often into the physics theories here on this particular show. I know Chris Fisher does that a lot on traditional stoicism, which if anyone hasn't checked out that podcast, you should. He has a YouTube channel as well, which is far too unsubscribed. More people need to subscribe to Chris on his YouTube channel. Uh, but I do want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about that physics th uh, theory and why it was attractive to you and maybe outline it a bit, because I think my listeners and viewers would, would benefit from hearing it from someone like you who approaches, and I think this is going to be a theme of the conversation moving forward. Your book is very unique in that it's not a life hack. It's not about making yourself better, which is, I think, what a lot of Stoic books tend to be about these days. It's a real focus on the self. It's an individualism, or rather an individualistic philosophy. And there's this analogy I've used before that is, you know, you can use a surgical scalpel to cut paper if you want to, but that is not what surgical scalpels were made for. And I think Stoicism is something something. Uh, similar to that, but but I'm I'm giving you way too much at one time to process. So let's start with the phys the uh, physics theories and what struck you about those in particular. Yeah, in in the book in chapter three, I think it is of the book, I focus on the body and this idea that this thing that we might think is distinctly ours as an individual human shares common relations and a common constitution with not only other bodies, but with the rest of the world. And so that's the basis for the physics of the Stoics, is to recognize this kinship between one's own body and other bodies, be they human bodies or not human bodies. So once we appreciate that, this common flesh to things we might call it, you know, later Stoics like Marcus Aurelius will refer to it as this this substance, they use that word. And it is quite simple in the sense that if we think about the stuff that has made us, we can think of it as a preceding materiality that has formed into us. And then when we pass away, it reforms into something else in the world. And Marcus Aurelius uses the very evocative description of wax to describe how the stuff of the world uh, becomes a horse and then it melts down and then it becomes us. And your readers might, or your listeners might be aware of the Stoic principle, not just Stoic principle, the ancient principle of conflagration and the cycles of life and destruction and reformation. And it's not really destruction at all. It's change. Everything is change. And so I think through the physics, you get the ethics in the sense that even with that notion of change, everything is change. You get one of the pillars of the resilience movement that has born out of uh, the philosophy, this idea to be resilient to change because you can't stop change. Everything is change. And why is everything change? The theory goes back to the physics again. How, does, how do physical things form and reform and reform and reform? Um, now there's a lot more to it, but that's 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 one of the one of the foundations of it that again I think 
it's quite appealing. The whole th- uh, theme this week, this month, in fact, is about oikiosis, the idea that we have to come to understand what is ours to be concerned with, and that's going to bleed over into identifying what our roles are and how we figure that out. Why is this important? Well, it's interesting that you ask me that because most people who want to talk to me about the book are curious if I'm negating individuality um, or at the very least asking people to relinquish individuality. Well, the individual has to act, so you're certainly not, right? No. What what I'm doing rather than negating or relinquishing individuality is contextualizing it and saying that we're not, none of us are an island, so to speak. And Stoicism, whilst it's portrayed sometimes as a a philosophy of internality and uh, closing one's mind off from external dangers in the world, it's actually a a philosophy where we get to trace our own internality within everything around us and recognizing what's common about our mind to everything else. And it's through that we can then identify our responsibilities and our duties and our obligations to this world because in essence this world has originated us it's given us our mind it's given us our fate it's given us our bodies and so the notion of the shared mind therefore doesn't suggest that we don't have individual orientations we don't have individual um, proclivities and talents and and roles to play that aren't that are that are different from other people's roles and different pe- people's attributes um, that can all be accommodated and should be recognized but at the same time we can do that without entirely closing off the individual each of us individually from everything else around us uh, those are the readings of stoicism that i'm that i'm trying to counterbalance with this book and with this impression of the mind i think some people might hear this regardless of how adeptly you just explained your answer to my question and think yeah but this is collectivism and i think maybe part of that reason would be maybe they want to hear that maybe they're on the defensive and they want to hear they're they're anti-collectivist for example but also i think you're an academic. Is that fair to say? You you call you refer to yourself as an academic. That's fair, right? Well, I, I guess I come from an academic sphere. Sure. So, yeah. <laughs> and and it's the case that people who come from the academic sphere, as you've just more elegantly put it, is the use of certain words with a capital first letter that the rest of the world uses in a lowercase sense. And we see this in Stoicism, the word Stoicism. We have the the idea of being Stoic, which has nothing to do with the idea of being Stoic with a capital S, right? These are different things, and that mm-hmm. capitalization makes a big difference. So can you explain with that in mind, what is the nuance that keeps this oikiotic term I'm coining a lot this month, I think, this oikiotic feature of stoicism from being collectivist capital c collectivist can we get into the weeds a bit on that well it's a a humanist philosophy first of all it tells us that we can only view the world through a human lens uh it's a very specific lens as well and in that that model that we see through hierocles and also cicero has a portrayal that could arguably predate the the one through hierocles uh we do see where the most inner relation is and that's with one's mind and then depending on whose model you go to then with one's body that's even before you start to explore the interpersonal relations so anyone who assumes that this is primarily a collectivist uh, commentary on the philosophy and one that discounts individualism should note that i note that the the heart of it is a self-relation the heart of it is is one in which you have to recognize uh, yourself as part of a, a grander nature before you can then recognize other people as part of that nature as well. And then, of course, uh, recognize more and more communities around that. Um, that's the 
the model underpinning oikiosis, and uh, it begins with the individual. Let's make that way more practical. Let's take this into the real world, baby. <laughs> Let's talk about the fact that you were a new father. Congratulations. And that something that I'm struggling with, because as the audience knows, I'm also about to be a father. You're a few months ahead of me. Something that you might be struggling with that I'm struggling with is the education of this new about to be human. And maybe you have, you're, you're concerned about how you're going to educate your new little human. I find myself worried a lot about how my kid is going to be a good kid. <laughs> right. Uh, and one of the first things I think about is at some point, this kid of mine is going to be in the public school system or in the private school system, or I'm going to homeschool this kid. And I look at the, I look at the educational system writ large, and I'm worried about putting them in that environment because these things that we're talking about today are very important to me and very central to now how I live my life or am trying to, uh, trying to live my life better every day. And I worry that if I plunk my kid into public school, private school, or even if I try to do it myself, I'm worried that they're not going to get this very important education. That is, you don't just need to approach being educated from a utilitarian standpoint. Where the heck is virtue in everywhere else? So I guess this is a very sloppy way of asking you how we instill in others, the new generation or older generations, and in particular, our own kids, the importance of having this view, even if they're not Stoics, just this importance of having this view of we're making ourselves better for the sake of making the world a better place. Again, this is a sloppy question, Will, but I hope you get what I'm asking. So it's part of it, perhaps, the recognition that for the Stoics, uh, there is the obligation to train others. Yes. We see Epictetus describe this, and we see Seneca describe this. And it's not simply the role of the sage, which which is a, a device rather than a reality, um, but more the idea that because of the practice-based nature of the philosophy, it's a, it's a public square philosophy. And so the way in which you can train not only yourself but others is to develop the habits which encompass virtuous existence and to exhibit them simply through the practice of them in the public square, for instance. Another example would be in the classroom in the modern day. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if some of these principles were integrated into public primary school, infant school, public school syllabus? Um, I, I, yes, that, that, that's a real cause that, that, that uh, some of us perhaps should be pursuing. The, the idea, though, that the training of Stoic principles and imparting them to others is a very practical way of enacting, I think, uh, the circles of connection that oikiosis describes. One of the principles of oikiosis is, in their terms, to reduce some of the distances between the interconnections between people. And whilst I think ultimately the point is not to reduce the distance, but to realize that the distance between you and someone else is already negligible. You're already sharing so much that the distance was never there to begin with. You just had to become aware of what you had in common. Um, a practical way in which this can be enacted is through training and, and showing others the way in which it is appropriate to live, let's say. And school would be a, the perfect arena for that. It would be. However, for whatever reason, does it seem to you, it seems to me, I'll lead with that. It seems to me that virtue ethics bring out a sort of combativeness with contemporary, you referred to continental philosophy earlier, but I think it just contemporary philosophy seems very much not concerned with the idea of virtue. If you bring it up, you're kind of chuckled at as, you know, this old fashioned, you're probably literally quite old if you care about this, right? You're, you're to, to suggest that you care about developing virtue as being the only good as the Stoics did. Well, you're missing something. You haven't moved on with the times and that departure from caring about 
virtue seems very, very deeply impressed upon contemporary uh, zeitgeist. And I have no idea how to do anything about that. Do you? Well, I completely agree regarding a characterization of continental philosophy. And this is one of the advantages, I think, to focusing on schooling, which occurs before university level, because there isn't much schooling of continental philosophy that goes on before university level. And I dare say most of it would be, wouldn't be relevant uh, to primary school, infant school, public schools uh, teachings anyway. Whereas something like virtue ethics does, it could really have a place there. In Australia, we have a system which uh, does integrate some philosophy teaching into really young uh, kids' schooling. It's, it's very rudimentary. It's still like an experimental model. And these are the kind of contexts in which Stoicism would be really practically applied. And if they were to do that, then one of the first examples I think that would be used or could be used would be discussions around oikiosis. What is it about yourself that you that you recognize in your, in yourself and that you also recognize in others? And what is that the basis for in relation to living virtuously, living ethically? Um, what a wonderful place to start and what a really simple place to start as well. It doesn't require, as you're fond of saying, digging into the weeds of, of Seneca or anyone else. It's a, it's a really, really uh, simple question. You can you can work through exercises practically um, to look at this at any age, I think. Well, and it also avoids, although it's a it's a it's a tightrope to walk. I think uh, the ancient Stoics were pretty firm on there being a certain age at which you could introduce these uh, concepts to children. Uh, and I think that anyone who has ever struggled with religious practice, in particular fundamentalist religious practice, or has escaped it, uh, some listeners may be in that position. I, I don't want to take a atheistic or theistic stance here. I just want to say that religion can present um, the opportunity for parents to uh, what is the word to indoctrinate their children at a very young age using something like fear as a way of doing that. And I think that the Stoics are probably keen on this in some way to, to avoid forcing a child to become a Stoic by leveraging too much of their own personal philosophy over, over the malleability of a young person's mind. But I don't think, as you just said, I said frequently, I don't think you need to go to a kid and say, virtue is the only good, <laughs> and you're going to have a terrible character if you don't believe that. Like, I don't think you need to right. dive into the into the weeds with a young child, but you can introduce, as you just said, and I love that, just the concept of oikiosis without even calling it that. What is the thing about yourself that you see in others? What is the thing about yourself that you find that might be useful to your friends? Why do you have friends? Why do you think friends are important? Having conversations like that and maybe leading that conversation in a, in a stoically-minded way Way. could be a great start that's not manipulative so much as it is helpful because there are certainly other philosophies that place a value on service to others and and service to oneself for the sake of service to others. Yeah, and it definitely doesn't have to be approached in a manipulative way or in a way that's indoctrinating young minds with a particular ideology. It could not only be beneficial in all the ways that you just said, it could also be a preventative for one kind of mental health Ill, uh, issue that that manifests around anxiety and feelings of alienation. Now, I've said this before, but I think some of the prototypical presentations of stoicism these days, which do encourage people to distinguish between what they can control versus what they can't, and to view what they can't control as some kind of other world that needs to be that they need to defend their mind from. I think if anyone's coming to the philosophy and that's their, their introduction to it, and they've got mental health concerns already that kind of presentation of the philosophy could only be damaging 
in terms of the further alienation it would make one feel in relation to the rest of the world, which is causing them the anxiety in the first place? What if at a very young age we're taught differently that there isn't this border between your mind and the rest of the world? And to, through orchiosis and similar principles within Stoicism, to recognize this kinship between one's own mind and other minds. Uh, I think that in terms of the benefits from a mental health point of view, regard, regardless of anything else, uh, there's a real case to be made. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. That is an interesting characterization of the so-called self-help or maybe even life hack uh, interpretations of stoicism, because I think most people would say, you know, if you don't go all the way into the deep end, that's okay. Self-help stoicism is still useful to some degree. But I think I agree with you that if the self-help version of stoicism is asking you essentially to, to be fine on your own, that is very alienating. You're not fine on your own. Like imagine telling someone you're not fine on your own <laughs> and you shouldn't be fine on your own because, you know, least to do with stoicism, human beings are social animals. And stoicism in particular, in particular says that human beings are pro-social. And so if you are not a social human being, stoicism might help you in the resilience camp uh, or in the resilience category, whatever, to find a way to survive occurrences of being alone and being isolated. Mm. It might lend to you a sort of resilience to survive those episodes. But it, but the point of it, and I just talked about this with William Stevens last week, the, the point of it is not to become that thing. The point of it is, if, if you're ever in those situations, you can survive those things. But the point of it is to make you a contributing member to the single body and mind, as, as you've put it, that you are intrinsically a part of and helping you to understand that you are a part of a singular body. Yeah, and and what a wonderfully different point of view, and what a wonderfully orthodox classical Stoic point of view. Uh, this is an, an this is not an adventurous reading of Stoicism. This is the orthodox reading of Stoicism, and I think recently there's been such a tendency to demonize externals and to present what is external to the self as being outside one's control and something to which one against which one must be on guard, whereas. The nuanced version of Stoicism, which is, again, the orthodox reading of Stoicism, is that the thing which is greater than you constituted you. You originated from it. You're, in Epictetus's terms, you're a fragment of it. According to Posidonius, you're a trace of it. Um, you share a kinship with it. So Seneca talks about um, this familial relationship we'll always have with everything around us. So these thinkers are not describing everything that is not us as something against which we have to be on guard. For that reason, a more nuanced appreciation of uh, the, 
our relationship with everything else needs to occur with modern commentaries on stoicism and a proper understanding of oikiosis is probably the one of the best ways to go about it and anyone listening might someone listening might say maybe you 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 particular listener listening right now maybe you're thinking but externals don't have an impact on our per, on our pursuit of virtue the stoics definitely say that and so we're not supposed to care about those things which are external right those are indifferent things those are indifference ents those are indifference well not exactly because <laughs> as external and as indifferent as they may be uh, i don't think you have a particularly good grasp on what it means to be indifferent. Certainly the way someone treats me is indifferent to whether or not I can develop a virtuous character. When I say you, I don't mean you, Will. I mean, you you know, the person listening, perhaps. Oh, you never know what I might do, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, it will, that it does not impact my ability to develop towards virtue or the to develop a virtuous character, but it does impact my ability to develop a virtuous character, how I deal with that indifferent. So what I think might be important to make clear here to anyone who is feeling like what Will just said is ignoring the very nature of what an indifferent is or an external is. Yes, it's true the external cannot impact whether or not you achieve virtue, the knowledge of how to live excellently, but the way you deal with the external is an expression of your character and so directly provides uh, the material by which you can move closer or further from a sage-like behavior, right? We're trying to, if someone calls us a name and we punch him in the face, them calling us a name is not what took us away from the path of virtue. It was our choice to punch them in the face that did that. And so the way we deal with externals and the way we deal with indifference kind of makes them not indifferent at all. So the Stoics might have indifference, but they're not indifference towards indifference, if, if that makes sense. I think it's important to point that out. It is. A lot of, there's a lot of nuance required when reading the Stoics. And when we think about our relations with other people, which is one of the hearts of, of the thesis of oikiosis, our relations with other people, you know, at once you you do get almost all the Stoics for which we have decent a decent amount of material surviving say that we must not succumb to the gossip of the crowd. You know, um, we must not we we must in some way remain impervious to to these kinds of trends and fads. But on the other hand, these other people are people with whom the same Stoics will tell us that we have a kinship and um, we, sh we have something shared with them. And so with all of these positions in Stoicism, we can't just throw out what seems to be external. We have to realize that there's something about everything and everyone which is in some way external and in some way um, sharing in an in internal relationship with us. Why? Because for humans, for instance, we'll embody the same rationality um, and so on. Although we may not express that rationality the same way, unfortunately. <laughs> Precisely. Or at all. <laughs> yeah, or at all, yes. Gosh darn it. Okay, so I think that we're now arriving at a point where, okay, we kind of understand that this is important. We understand that we can't get away from the fact that we're part of a shared mind and body in the sense that you've described it in the way that you describe it in the book. And I think this brings us to trying to determine, since this is a month focused on oikiosis and oikiotic thinking and action, is this brings us to a point where how do we apply what you teach in your book and what we've been discussing here for the last little bit? How do you apply this to figuring out the actions and choices, the roles? you take on, the actions and choices you make in life. How do you take this 
I don't want to call it didactic, but it is a very high-minded, I think, mm. discussion that we've been having to some extent. How do we bring this into a practical sense and use it to make decisions about the things we care about, the things we choose to participate in, identifying our roles, things like that? Because I think that my listeners uh, and readers and viewers, I guess now with a YouTube channel, have a sense that we decide what to do based on the roles we have. And the roles we have are based somewhat on the kind of uh, character personality we have, things that we're drawn to, things that we're naturally skilled at. But when it comes to actually picking what it is that we should do, when it comes to making a decision, stoicism seems a lot less clear, mostly because it doesn't give directives in that way. So how might we take this conversation we've been having and apply it to the process of figuring out the things we're supposed to do and care about and take action on versus the millions of things we won't be able to as a result of only being able to choose so many things in our lifetime. Yeah, it's a great question, Tanner. It's very practical. And let's remember that Stoicism is a practical philosophy and it would be impractical for us to try to commit ourselves to everything and to everyone. We'd be no use to anyone uh, as a result. So in remaining highly conscious of, of the practical emphasis of the philosophy. I regularly am reminded of the words of Heracles and Seneca and Epictetus when they tell us not to relinquish our obligations and our duties to those with whom we have our closest connections. And this is expanding on an idea from Aristotle about not spreading spreading oneself too thinly. Otherwise, none of your friendships will be worth anything. And so I am constantly aware of that. And when you see people in need who aren't in your immediate circle, that does not mean ignoring them. But the question is, how do I tend to make my choice? How do I tend to uh, obligate myself? And it does tend to be within my local circles. Another way to put it is that I recognize my interconnections with everyone and everything. And when people treat me badly, when someone pushes ahead of me in the bus line, I recognize that they're an expression of a system of which I'm also a part and something might be going on in their day via which they're not thinking rationally right now. They're, as Marcus Aurelius might say, they're, they're, they're becoming cancerous to the system briefly. Um, and so you can recognize these, these things and you can recognize them within your closest circles as well. But practically, how do I live day to day? It's always, it's almost always with a commitment to those who are closest. Again, I don't think the, the model of, of Heracles is intending for us to reach out constantly in an impractical way and obligate ourselves to the entire world to the detriment of our local world. Um, it's almost Stoicism has always, to me, been a philosophy which says that through your local world, you can see the entire world. And one example of that was when Seneca talks about knowledge and about people going around the world and traveling frivolously and coming back and they can speak all these languages and tell you all of these amazing stories about far-flung lands. But he says they don't really have knowledge of what it means to be a, a member of the world in, in his sense. And that membership is rather one where you recognize your integration in a, in a universal system. So again, that perspective that local's perspective that branches out into an overall, let's call it cosmopolis because we're here talking with Stoics, is probably how I live day to day. It's not a matter of roaming the lands, trying to find people who I don't know to help. It doesn't mean shirking responsibilities again to those that I don't encounter day to day or who aren't really familiar to me, but it's more about how can one be a practical member of society. So how does someone deal with, in contemporary times, this sort of shaming that happens when a person does not express whatever society might deem to be the appropriate amount of concern and care for the issue of the day. For, for example, if you are not participating in a 
particular strain of hashtag activism. Or if you're not, if there's an earthquake in Japan, as there recently was, and you are not shouting from the rooftops about aid and such to uh, to the people affected by that. I think there's an outrage culture that has been referred to by other people, certainly other than myself, that seems to suggest that we must care about everything or we're not a good person. Of course, contemporary thinkers, for the most part, define good person differently than we as Stoics do. But how does a Stoic navigate accusations uh, and attempts to shame them for taking a stance like what you just outlined, which I think is a very uh, appropriate stance that you you care broadly about? Of course, you care about things that happen far away from you that you can do nothing about. But there's a limited number of things which you can concern yourself with. With, which I identify with being able to act towards in a meaningful way. That to me is the difference between care and concern. I care about things I can't concern myself with. But but how does one draw those distinctions in public and avoid, or maybe even defend themselves if they're interested in, defending themselves against these accusations of non-care, non-concern, and, uh, and so on? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I remember when I first heard the term virtue signaling. And it was 2017, and one of my friends brought it to my attention, and I'd just been reading a lot about virtue ethics of Stoics, and virtue signaling t- seems to be the antithesis of practically living virtuously, according to Stoicism. The most important thing for me is that in the book, I describe living rationally as thinking and doing with the perspective that you are an integrated part of an overall system. If everything I think and everything I do in my own life or about others reflects that awareness of a systemic integration, then I believe I'm acting rationally. And if I'm acting rationally, I'm acting socially. Uh, For me, that's enough. If I cannot, if that isn't enough for the social media cancellation mob, then there's not a lot I can do about that. And I wouldn't be too concerned about not being able to convince them. Yeah, I think that's fair. I like that. Just out of curiosity, have you received any flack for your for your book anybody come to you and said oh this isn't a very have you faced any serious criticisms from anybody in the social media mob as you put it i not for this book for my first book i did receive some academic concerns around the topic of individualism and people who wanted to hold on to stoicism as a as a celebration of individualism and there was it was a couple in there entitled to their perspective so there wasn't necessarily a I don't think I'm high enough profile to be to be cancelled, <laughs> and I don't think my my views are provocative enough <laughs> either. So I haven't I haven't encountered that as such. I imagine one might be a little bit more susceptible to that kind of attack if they were adopting some of the Stoics' more well seemingly unsympathetic language around, mm. which is a, which is a not a decent portrayal of Stoicism anyway. Stoicism is not an unsympathetic philosophy. It's not an unemotional philosophy. We all know that. But I can imagine that there are some portrayals of Stoicism which would adopt this black and white sense of you do this or not. And and that could lead people into trouble, I guess. Real Stoics don't have time for love or relationships. That's stupid. Right? Yeah, exactly. things like this, right? <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm probably too touchy-feely to be, a, to be a real Stoic or to be criticized for not being one. Yeah, that's something that uh, William Stevens actually brought up last week that, look, just because you're not a bodybuilding gym guy doesn't mean like you can be an artist and still be a stoic you can be a yoga teacher and still be a, still be a stoic yeah william stevens one of my favorite scholars he was actually one of the peer reviewers of my first book that palgrave sent out the book to wonderful thinker he has a great perspective on where the philosophy is going 
I want to. I actually want to give you an opportunity here, maybe to plug the book a little bit. We've been talking about it, but where where can people get it? We still have some more to talk about, but rather than put it at the end where everyone skips it, <laughs> we're gonna put it right in the middle. Uh, where can people <laughs> find your book, Will? Hopefully, everywhere. It's available at all good bookstores. Um, mm-hmm. It yeah, it's everywhere that you can order a book. Amazon will have it if you want to go down that route. You can go through the publisher with uh, with and stock in the US. And uh, apart from that, just Google Beyond the Individual. It's available and hopefully will be a decent price in your territory. Yes. Uh, did you release via a university press or did you go private publisher? No, it's not you know, it's yeah, not university press. Oh good. So it won't be three hundred dollars. <laughs> Precisely. My last book was I think $126, the cheapest copy of it. Yikes. Whereas this Yikes. is around $100 cheapest. <laughs> yes. And, I, and I, if I could say something on it, I found it to be, it rode this very interesting line that I don't, I cannot recall a book that has written this same line so well. It is very detailed and it is very thorough, but it is not very intimidating. It is intellectually challenging, but not to the, to the degree where you, and this is not a criticism of her, but I think anyone who's read her books will, will understand what I mean. It doesn't feel like reading Graver. It, it feels much less like that, but it feels equally as useful as, as reading Graver. And I think that is a difficult thing to do. It's also, I thought, a, a rather light read. It's not that long. I think you could, you could read it in a weekend. 70 pages, I think, or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You could read it in a weekend, but you will definitely be rereading it more than once because if, if you're anything like me, you'll, you'll hit a paragraph where you're like, no, wait, a minute. That's not what I think. Why don't I think that? <laughs> Will's smarter than me. Let me reread this until no, I understand what until I understand what Will meant here. That is not true. Uh, so maybe you can't get through it in a weekend uh, and understand it fully. But yeah. uh, <laughs> oh no, I mean I'm not smarter than you. That's what I. Oh mean. no, you are. <laughs> you are, and everyone agrees. <laughs> it's thorough because even though I don't think it's an adventurous argument, I think it follows a very traditional, classical stoic uh, point of view which makes it hard well exactly and I, and I and it's thorough because i realized that it's going to buck a certain trend and i want people to be able to sit with that um as they read it and for me also it's almost like presenting this court this case in court and i feel i need to show the evidence at times thoroughly to prove the point because it does sit somewhat askew from uh, so many other readings. When, For instance, when Seneca and Epictetus are saying, everything is social, everything is social, everything is social, uh, you're, I, I want people to understand that this isn't me concocting this idea. It's it's so repetitive, repetitive in the literature. Um, and, I, and I want people to see how repetitive it is in the literature. Unfortunately, we have... Uh, some rather successful authors, one in particular being Ryan Holiday, who I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast is familiar with, uh, who has been extremely successful in reintroducing Stoicism, let's say, to the mass uh, public. And that has, in a way, been very beneficial because Stoicism might not be having this resurgence of interest that it's had over the last, let's call it a decade, maybe a little bit more. If it wasn't for Ryan Holiday, it's hard not to admit that. But at the same time, Ryan Holiday has put forth a an interpretation of stoicism which makes a book like wills necessary to be written uh, because if if you read holiday's books it does seem like a very individualistic uh philosophy that it, it is about making yourself stern and controlled and disciplined and that it's it's very inward facing as opposed to being everything that, that will and i have talked about in this episode which is i would love if somehow i could replace the first book 
that people came to in Stoicism from being a Ryan Holiday book, which it probably is if it's not a Donald Robertson book. Like if, if it's a Ryan Holiday book, I wish I could replace that with Will Johncock's book, Beyond the Individual. That would be, it would be so amazing, not just for Will financially, <laughs> but it would also be, but it would also be good for everybody, I think, who wants to genuinely practice what I consider to be actual Stoicism. I'd love to see that happen. So if you are not familiar with Will and you haven't purchased his book, now you are familiar with him and you should purchase this book. Just Google Beyond the Individual by Will John Cock. Will, can I also suggest that you buy the domain johnwilcock.com just in case? Because I'm constantly messing your name up. Don't worry. I've had students in week 12 of semester who will put their hand up in class and say, uh, sorry, John, can I ask you a question? It's, <laughs> so people have been in my presence for months and still done it. Don't worry. <laughs> Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. We've got a little bit of time left, but I want to end with, you talk about happiness as being the ultimate stoic state. And I agree with this because I think one who has a virtuous character must necessarily be joyous. I don't know that I would use the word happy, but I think you and I might use that word interchangeably, joyous and happy. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. But but what do you mean by happiness is the ultimate stoic state? What does that mean? Are we talking about a different kind of happiness than, you know, happy that we are on Christmas when we get a gift? What are we talking about when we say this? Yeah, so... This alludes to the distinction that the Stoics make be between pleasure and rationality. And conventionally, we do think of happiness as a pleasurable feeling, as an emotion, actually. And the happiness to which the Stoics are referring and something that I, I explore in that chapter is eudaimonic happiness, which is living rationally. Everything we've been talking about in a way, living virtuously. And so that is the the pinnacle, let's say, of rationality. What is the purpose of rationality? Is to be happy. Happy, but not in a pleasurable sense, not in an emotional sense. Marcus Aurelius talks about the universe being a happy body, talks about the perfect happiness of the universe. So these are, again, ways in which we need to be careful with the nuances of the Stoic language. And it's not just the Stoic language, it's the it's the, uh, the language of the era that other philosophies were diving into as well. And once we do that, then we can, again, emphasize that the role of rationality and what does rationality mean? What is the relationship between rationality and being a, a person who's aware of their, their part in the whole? All of these things. So then we get the sense of happiness as being, okay, I'm happy if I'm 
playing my part in the whole. And from that, from that, we can then make an argument that being living rationally happy will induce a more conventional understanding of the, of the happiness that we talk about in the in the current day. At the very least, the, that it will deflect irrational unhappiness, as they say, and that and that un, irrational unhappiness coming from being divorced from the universe itself, uh, from being an outsider, so to speak. And because of the way that the terminology is used, it can be a lot to get one's head around in 2024. When reading the Stoics, you just have to remember that we're talking about a, a group of people who are concerned with living virtuously and rationally. They're not primarily concerned with living pleasurably emotionally. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there are no emotions or pleasures, but rather it means that what we call emotions and pleasures will manifest from living rationally and virtuously. We have a question from someone who's watching this live stream right now, uh, which by the way, uh, if you're a patron, you do get access to seeing these conversations recorded live, wherein you will realize how much editing I do. <laughs> because when these conversations start, uh, I'm not awake. <laughs> I'm not really awake. I don't get intellectually awake until about 15 minutes into a conversation, you'll see all that mess uh, if you watch the lives. And if you're not a patron, you can become one by going to uh, patreon.com forward slash Tanner Campbell or just stoicismpod.com forward slash members. And I would appreciate it if you did. This question comes from Daniel Alicia Munez. And I'm sorry if I've said that incorrectly, uh, Daniel, your name that is. What are some things I should be looking for or looking to notice or feel to know that I've reached a state of proper oikiosis? How often can you reach this state in a day or month or year or life? So I actually like this question for, for two reasons. One, I think you're going to have a good answer, um, but, but also because it does this thing that we have a tendency to do with stoicism, which is we want to make it as granular as possible. And we want like, we want very specific instruction. And we get a lot of questions like, what, what is the stoic position on X? Mm -hmm. And, and there's not really an answer to that <laughs> because it's always right, contextual. Right. But, but what answer do you have here, Will, for? for our viewer. I think you know that you're living in a way that is in coherence with what the Stoics mean by archaeosis. If when you consider other people, you consider them to be limbs of a body just as you are. If you consider a kinship with them in the way that you consider a kinship with people whom you're relate to whom you're related. I think if you can approach people who you don't know as they ideally say, in the same way as the people you do know. It doesn't mean you'll do it as often. It doesn't mean you'll be as obligated to them. But if you can approach them in a way that is, from, is similar to how you approach the people that you see day to day that you're related to, etc., then you're living in a way that is in coherence, in a coherence with what the Stoics mean by archaeosis. So in many ways, it's a mental approach. So often about with the Stoics, whilst it's a practical philosophy that's concerned with how we actually live day to day, so often what is really at stake is your mental awareness of your life and, and of your relations with the world and with other people. And if you are looking at people through this lens, if you're seeing them as so in common with you that uh, you you feel this sense of kinship with them, then I think that's when you know. And if you're seeing people and you feel alienated from them, if you're seeing people and they seem like strangers, if you feel completely no compassion to people, if you feel nothing in common with people, then I would suggest that this is perhaps an indication that there is something about the stoic theory of oikiosis that has not quite gotten through, or that the people with whom you feel no connection are living so incredibly irrationally, mm. and you're not, that there's the disjunct there. And that's possible. 
and that's possible. But it's also a very rational approach and a very, it's an approach that's consistent with oikiosis to recognize that you do share something in common with someone else, but that they're living so irrationally that that connection is currently broken down. And I'll do some shorthand for you here, Daniel. Ask yourself, would Ebenezer Scrooge approve of my behavior? And if the answer is yes, then you're probably <laughs> doing a bad job. Uh, and if you ask yourself, would the ghost of Christmas present appreciate my behavior? And the answer is yes, you're probably more in alignment with oikiosis. Uh, and and I, I will end this on kind of a giggly note with one more question from Christine, uh, who asks, <laughs> and I think we all know the state of mind Christine may have been in when they asked this question. Do employers slash workplaces fall within the stoic circles of concern? No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, by all means. Uh, I, how could we describe it? I guess when, you, when we're looking at those circles, when they're graphically drawn these days, and they're, they're quite neatly done now, employers would probably come in that circle outside and, and workmates, for that matter, would probably come in that circle outside uh, one's family. What do you think, Tana? Yeah, be part of community. Yeah, it's somewhere in there. Yeah. And so, yes, I think that would so, just be another part of that. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> That's probably a good argument that they're not, though. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. The sto- stoic circles of concern, except this little part except over here, this that, little part. That, that's right. This is this is the stoic revolving moon of concern. This is far outside the rest of this. That's stoics. the part of the text that didn't survive the ravages of the last couple of thousand years. <laughs> right, right. The What is it? The, the AI tools that are being used to read the scrolls of Alexandria right yeah, now might yeah, help yeah, us yeah, to yeah. might help us to finally discover where <laughs> and whoever asked that question will be chagrin. considered a genius. Yeah, they will be. Good job, Christine. Yeah, well done, Christine. Okay, well, Will, I appreciate you uh, taking the time. It's it's late at night where you are. It's Is it terrible to be in Australia sometimes? Are you just like, man, I'm never on anyone's time schedule? Australia is always upside down. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, we're used to it. Uh, whenever, yes, the rest of the world is 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 doing its thing, and we're um, dipping in and out. Yeah, great. Okay, well, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. The book is Beyond the Individual. The man is Will John Cock, not John Wilcock, not John John Cock. It's Will John Cock. Google his name, search for his book, buy it. It will be worth uh, the twenty or so bucks that you'll pay for it. It's a wonderful book. And again, thank you so much, Will. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Tanner. I really enjoyed the chat. 